G'day everybody and welcome back to the extras. My name is Sam. And I'm Raj. Hello Raj, you're remote today and uh, yeah, good, good to kind of see your pixels. Yeah, look Sam, you're, you're more attractive in pixels than the flesh or maybe that you've just combed your hair or something. I like just that, turned on the touch, touch up my appearance fe- feature and I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm looking great, so... I, I need some help to find that one. Need all the help I can get. All right, uh, mate. Good to good to see you. We are doing uh, the extras today, and uh, thinking through questions from Joel chapter two, or at least the the first part of that, um, which we were in on Sunday. And so we'll dive in. We've got sort of uh, eight or nine questions to tackle together today. But can you just give us a quick recap of uh, what that part of the Bible's all about? Just get us back into gear where we were on Sunday. Yeah, thanks, Sam. So, look, Joel 1, let's go back to the start of Joel just to get our bearings. It really picks up on this quite spectacular image of a locust plague. And I do encourage you, um, in in the growth group notes, there's a link to a video that, you know, just just helps you see what a locust swarm is like. It really is quite a vivid um, video, and as is Joel chapter 1, to talk about um, what, what I think was a real locust swarm sent by the lord yep um we can see that the locust swarm has come and it happens in history but joel one talks about um why it's come Mm. and it's come as as um as judgment on on people who are turned away from god and stop magnifying god to be god so we come into chapter two and it really picks up on that that striking picture of judgment um and now talks about it from a different angle um, and, and gives us a variety of images to talk about how dreadful the day of the Lord will be. Um, um, and I just, it's quite, it's fascinating to see that, that fear uh, and, and looking at what's coming is very much a motivation then to the incredible invitation of verse 12. Um, Even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart with fasting and weeping and mourning. Mm. And so that's really the flow of chapter two, yep. starting off with that with that judgment, um, uh, both locally but also expressed in cosmic terms, yep. uh, which then leads to that invitation. Yeah. Um, and, and there's great words there for us. We're New Testament people, this side of Jesus. We know that what God has in mind there to make that invitation possible right. is sending Jesus to die and rise from the dead so that we can be forgiven. Um we know that they didn't know that, um, uh, and as we read Joel, we we very much need to factor that in. Yeah, and I think it's a sort of great rejoicing for us. Yeah, to know how it works in that way. Yeah, really helpful, mate. Yeah, return of the Lord in light of the coming judgment, which we can do through Christ. That that's just a it was, it was a really helpful time on Sunday. So thank you for taking us through it. Um, let, let's dive into some questions and uh, let, let's see how we go with these. So uh, the first one here uh, is all about those locusts uh, that, that you mentioned. And the question is that they'd assumed that the, the army in Joel 2 um, was a swarm of locusts described as an army. Um, they're asking, could that is that right? Or is it perhaps an army perhaps of humans that are described a bit like locusts? Um, you know, Eden's in front of them, a wasteland behind them. Uh, or given that it's God's army of judgment, is it both or neither? Or what is it? Um, <laughs> who, who's the army? That's the question. It's a great question, and and I thank whoever put it, has put it in for doing so. Look, it could be any of those things. I think we need to remember that Joel is poetry, and and when we're reading poetry or writing poetry, 
Um, we, we need to bear in mind, firstly and foremostly, the point that is trying to be made. And the point that is trying to be made is, is that of um, the unstoppable nature of judgment. So the, the army that's coming, the thundering horses, the image of fire is also, you know, very much there. The locust swarm in chapter one, um, all of those are unstoppable. And and I, I actually think it's a bit dangerous to try to, you know, nail, nail down things in a literal sense. I understand the 21st century mind shaped by the scientific era really is keen to do that. Um, but, but when we read poetry, be, be that the poetry of today or the poetry of, um, I'm running with Joel written in the 600 BC. Yep. Um, uh, we just we just need to remember that. So look, it could be both. I think I do read Joel chapter one about the locusts um, as far more uh, a description of what has happened. Yep. Um, but but Joel two, I think, is shifting into. You know, it's just not not that clear. So if you read commentaries and mm. they can have whole discussions. Is it? Are they two different things? Are they both literal? Is one a metaphor for the other? Are they both metaphors? Yeah. Which is really the kind of thing that's behind this question. Yeah. Um, I, just yeah. just noting, like I was doing a bit of prep for our growth group for this week ahead, and uh, I was looking at verse 25 of chapter 2, which I know is in next week's passage, so I'm stealing James Chen's thunder here. Um, but, you know, look, let's let's do that. He's not here, so... Um, <laughs> And uh, it does seem that he, God now is talking about his mercy and his grace, and he says that he'll repay uh, the Israelites for the years that the locusts have eaten, the great locusts, the young locusts, the other locusts. Uh, and then he says, my great army that I've sent among you. So uh, again, there you get that locust and army kind of thing coming together in, in chapter yeah. two. Uh, but I think yeah, I think that's right. We, the, the point here is not so much locusts or people, it's the, the unstoppable nature of, of God's yeah. judgment. Yeah, and I, I do think on the locust, I mean, you see it just in, in those verses you've just talked about, but also throughout, it does just seem to keep coming back to that um, that concept of locust and that judgment of locust that is something very tangible that the people can relate to. Yeah. So, you know, um, um, you know that what you've just said, the army is the locust. So the locust is the literal thing, and then the army is a way of thinking about you know that yeah so look that's certainly a possibility yep um anyway let's keep going yeah let's keep going well so on that theme of judgment um as we kind of come into the new testament to think about judgment um someone's texted in a question about 1 john chapter 4 verse 18 which says uh there's no fear in love but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment the one who fears is not made perfect in love and yet joel chapter 2 is kind of calling us to fear the judgment of God so that we would repent and come back to God. And I guess the question is, how does a New Testament Christian hold up what John, 1 John is saying? You know, don't don't fear. Um, perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And Joel, Joel chapter 2, which is saying, fear God. How do we hold that together? Yeah. Um, again, an excellent question. It's great having these questions. There's a few different ways just to... to where my mind goes hearing that question again today um, and that is firstly the word fear in the Bible is the word respect and I think in the 21st century 20th century fear has become a very you know the, the connotations are quite negative around that mm. um, and and that's certainly true with you know that that is an element of respect um, but I think therefore when the Bible talks about fear we read that in quite negative terms and, and there is an element of that. Don't, I'm not saying there's not. Um, 
the concept of the fear of the Lord is very prominent in the Old Testament. Mm. Um, and um, so partly that is about, you know, what he's capable of in terms of judgment, but partly that is a more generic uh, respect for his character and who he is and that he is the creator of the universe. Um, and so I, I think we come into this verse in, you know, 1 John 4, and so, sorry, that's one way to think of it. You know, another way to think of it is, which is where I'm going to go now, is, is just to think, you know, yes, the image of fear of and the day of the Lord is something, even in Joel we see people who don't know the Lord should be fearful. There should be a negative fear from. That's Joel chapter 2. Mm. It lays it lays judgment down as a basis then for, you know, repenting. And I think 1 John chapter 4, uh, all of 1 John is so strong with the theme of love. And I, what 1 John 4 is doing here is turning around that negative connotation of fear into a really positive thing because of the love expressed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm. Um, so perfect love, because of God's perfect love for us, Fear, in the negative sense, can be driven out uh, because we now know that Jesus has taken the punishment. I talked about Barabbas and the exchange of Jesus the other night. Um, and so it's trying to say we, we there is no longer any need to fear the coming judgment of God because now we're not people who don't know God. We're people who do know God. And so the opposite is the case because mm. of love we can look forward to being saved. So there's, there's kind of a, a movement, isn't there, for the, for the Christian. You come to, to grasp the, the, the coming judgment of God, which is something to be feared, but then you see that Christ has paid it for you and that moves you from fear to great joy and delight and kind of drives out the fear because of the love that God has for us. Is that is that a fair Absolutely. way to summarize so, it? So that, that, is, that is a really helpful way to put it for the 21st century mind. Um, I, I think I just want to preserve an element of understanding, biblically speaking, you know, fear is the same word as respect. Mm. Um, and it has a, it just has a broader meaning than the 21st century mind. But, but yeah. sorry, don't get me wrong, Sam. I love what you said. No, no, I, I yeah, helpful. Yep. 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 Well, let, yep. Let's keep moving along because um, more, more on this day of the Lord, which is sort of the, the basis of, of God's judgment. And someone's helpfully questioning, look, um, is the day of the Lord mentioned here in the book of Joel, is it the same day of the Lord that gets mentioned in other prophetic books, particularly books like Zechariah, which does talk a fair bit about this? Um, what are some of the similarities and differences between this kind of day and the day of the Lord in these other books? Yeah, thank you. Um, love the question. And it's one of those questions, if I can just have a, a moment of confession. I saw the, the, the question and thought, you know, I'm not up on the nuances between the different prophetic um, Old Testament books and, and how they talk slightly differently about the day of the Lord. Mm. So, you know, I, I did, you know, and I would encourage anyone who's interested to do so. Um, I was able to find something online pretty easily just by typing in day of the Lord that really had a very good summary and list of verses of, you know, how that works itself out. But look, if I could just say in general terms, um, in the, 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 there are nuances, and the nuances have to do with when exactly books were written. This gets us into the whole issue, which is difficult, about when exactly Joel was written. And, and so, uh, but broadly speaking, when um, 
when the term day of the Lord is used in the Old Testament, it can be talking about and often is talking about a particular historical event mm. in those terms. So judgment's coming in locust plagues, and so it's not... They think about the day of the Lord. Mm. Um, and in other parts, Isaiah, you know, and, and other things as well. Um, I'm landing on 600 BC as a dating for Joel. That's that's not certain. Yep. But but that also is looking forward to the exile, which you know is another expression of a judgment of God. Um, so in the Old Testament, they were looking at particular historical things, but there also is a move and looking forward to a more cosmic reality of the the, the day of the Lord, which we see glimpses of in Joel two as well. Mm. Um, and so we come into the New Testament and. The New Testament, partly it looks it looks to Jesus' death as, as that day because he's taken judgment. Um, but also there's a forward-looking element of it. So I think I talked about 2 Peter 3 verse 10 mm. that talked about it's still to come. So so in terms of timing of the day of the Lord, you know, they're the kind of categories. There's Old Testament particular events. Yep. Um, there's pointing forward to the coming judgments. Uh, which is expressed in the coming of Jesus, the death and resurrection of Jesus, but also his second coming. But there's also a different emphasis. And I, one of the things I love about Joel is it doesn't just talk about the day of the Lord in negative terms like the fear language, um, but it also talks about it in positive terms, um, which we're going to see in the weeks ahead. Uh, that is, with the coming day of the Lord is also salvation for those who believe. Mm. Um so look, there, there's just a few things to to introduce some, yeah, you know, some theological categories or ways of thinking about it across the Bible, both in terms of when, but also in terms of what, mm. um, and and maybe that's just the most helpful thing to say at this point, Sam, in terms of having a framework. Um, Google is not always your friend, yeah. but maybe on this. Google can be helpful. Yeah. I mean, I I did a little search just with, um, on Bible Gateway. Um, If you use the um, inverted commas and type day of the Lord between inverted commas, you get all, you get a big list of them. Um, It seems to me that there are, there seems to be two ways that it gets used. Like you said, Um, sometimes it's about a a physical um, kind of trauma or tragedy that's going to happen in Zechariah 14, which the question talks about. Um, it's the it's the plundering of Jerusalem just ahead of um, its its kind of ultimate kind of destruction, um, which is a day of the Lord. Um, and then other times it seems to be talking about this sort of cosmic ultimate judgment that that the Lord will bring upon all the earth. Um, yeah, which is both wonderful for the people of God and uh, terrible for the enemies of God. Yeah. So that that's that's all I kind of came up with. Cool. Uh, let, let's push on. Um, uh, you, you talked about magnifying God as uh, sort of a, a right response to, to all of this. Um, and someone's texted in the question, look, how can we magnify God in our age? What, what are some examples? Um, uh, and then there's a, sort of, there's a second part to that, but we'll just, we'll just deal with that uh, part of the question first, if that's all right. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll be interested to hear what you think about this one too, Sam. I... I, I... Again, don't want to steal James Chen's preaching this Sunday. Really looking forward to that. Mm. Um, um, and so we are going to come, you know, to, to language that I have just been, you know, foreshadowing. Yeah. Uh, which is about, I just want to get the words right here, uh, which is about.
Um, well, I'll, I'll fast forward right to the end of the book, but it's also coming up this week in slightly different language. Um, right at the end, when we look at the picture of restoration that, that Joel is really wanting to land in, 3 verse 17, then you will know that I, the Lord your God, dwelling Zion, my holy hill, Jerusalem will be holy, never again will foreigners invade her. And so it's tied up with knowing that um, the Lord is their God and all of the implications of that. So knowledge in the Bible, it's not just an intellectual thing as sometimes it can be for us. Mm. It's a very holistic thing. And so we have already been introduced to some of the concerns God has about him not being worshipped. And and I, I, I've said it each of the last two weeks, I really find it quite quite fascinating that that is, in a sense, the primary curse that is reflected on and then the very first blessing that's reflected on if people return. Um, and so to magnify God as God is, is tied up with this idea of keeping or knowing and, and keeping God's name to be where it should be as the creator of the universe, as the one who we serve. Mm. So what does that look like in the current age? I, I think it's quite holistic. And, and you know, Romans 12, for example, talks about it not just being confined, but being, you know, our spiritual act of worship in the language of the NIV. Um, so I think that that partly is about having a priority to serve the Lord um, to stay in relationship with the Lord. Mm. Um, and what does that look like? Well, um, you know, a, a whole lot of things. It, living holy and godly lives as we wait for the return of our Saviour, mm. in, in the language, I think, of um, 2 Peter. Uh, it looks like meeting with God's people, loving loving God's people, meeting together to encourage one another in love and good deeds in whatever form you know, may, may be possible. Um, but look, Sam, I'm, I'm keen to think, you know, to, to hear your thoughts on that as well, you know, in, in terms of the current age and there's different congregations and different demographics and maybe some of the issues are different for different... Yeah. I mean, the thing that I was struck by from Joel was was um, verse 13, which is to, to rend your heart and not your garments. And so I think that, that, that to magnify God, I think it begins there. I think it begins in, in what goes on in your heart. So... Um, sometimes with worship, one of the issues can be, because uh, worship's a word quite closely connected, I think, to magnifying God. Um, it can be an external uh, kind of uh, appearing the right way to, to do the right things on the outside, whether that be in a, in a church gathering or in some other kind of religious setting. Um, but what I was struck by is just how Joel um, calls us to, to start at the heart and so to magnify God in your heart and return to him as the king of your life and place him at, in kind of position number one in your life, I think is where that begins uh, in this age and in any age. And so, um, yeah, that, that would be my first thing to, to note. Um, and then I think it would be just an outworking of that in every area of your life, that, that God, God rules as king and, and you worship him as such at every point, um, yeah, with, with your whole life. So I think it's obedience. Um, I think it's... Um, service of God, service of others, love of God, love of others, um, yeah, and, and all of that stemming from a, a deep sense of, of rejoicing, which is, again, not wanting to steal James Chen's thunder, um, <laughs> but that is that is the theme of this next section, isn't it? Um, you look at uh, chapter 2, verse 
23. Be glad, O people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God. Um, that That is just a, yeah, a, a refrain. I think you get that a couple of times through this, this next little section, but I, but I won't steal too much of that. Um, yeah, and, and look, I might just, I just looked up the Romans 12 passage that I loosely quoted, mm. um, but I might just read, read verses 1 and 2. Sam, we can move on to the next question then maybe. But yep. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And mm. I think that's picking up on the heart kind of thing. Yep. Fascinating what it then says in verse 2, to not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Yeah. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and holy and perfect will. Yep. And... Um, um, you're absolutely right. Worship, you know, in the 21st century has come to mean certain things, mm. focusing on the externals. But in the Bible, it's, it's a far deeper concept that goes very much to the heart. Yeah, yeah, very helpful. Um, okay, let, let's move on. Um, uh, there's a question here about God changing, and that's one of the things we love to say. God doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Um, and yet on Sunday, Raj, you mentioned that, that God changes his mind uh, when, uh, when the people repent. And uh, what's going on there? Is God, can, can he change his mind? Is that a change for God? Yeah, thanks, Sam. So I think um, this was a, a night church question. And I'd had a long day at that point, so I can't quite remember what I said. But, um, <laughs> um, but look, I, I think I tried to draw a distinction between the character of God, which is unchanging. And so we see we see elements of that here. We we talked about his justice. We talked about his graciousness, his compassion. Um, there to do with the character of God, that does not change. That is in distinction to God changing his mind. Um, and so there are two particular occasions in the Old Testament where we see where we see that God relents. And this is one of them in Joel chapter 2. The other one is in Jonah. Um, and on both occasions... God, he, he hears the cries of his people, he observes his, the people's repentance, and, and he changes his mind with respect to the judgment that's coming. Mm. And, and that is different to his character changing. He's a just God, he always has been a just God, he always will be a just God. He goes through extraordinary lengths to preserve being a just God, um, climaxing in sending Jesus so that his justice can be preserved mm. and punishment can be appropriated. Nice. Um, so look, that, that's just the distinction which is just helpful to keep in mind. His character is unchanging, yep. um, but what a wonderful thing it is. I think it's a wonderful thing that he changes his mind because I know that I'm a sinner. Yeah. And yet when I turn to him, um, he, in terms of my, you know, my future... That's that's a wonderful thing. That is great. Yeah. Okay. Um. Two more, Raj. So, uh, this one here is, is along a similar thread uh, about God relenting, but just questioning that verse fourteen has this kind of unsureness about it. Fourteen says, you know, who knows? He may turn and have pity. Um, that's that's quite different to God sort of promising he will relent. Um, so the question is, what if God doesn't? And um, is, is there any place for something like fasting or other responses to sin um, when, when we're sort of, you know, aware that we've, we're on the wrong side of God's justice? 
Uh, thank you. That's there's, there's a number of great issues there. Look, I, I think when you keep reading through Joel and just remembering the poetic nature of Joel, um, you, you, it's quite clear. You, you, it ends up talking about the coming day of the Lord, which is, you know, judgment for those who are not God's people, but for those who have, you know, uh, uh, embraced the invitation, return to me, that there's salvation involved. Mm. Um, and and so we just, just poetry, we, we need to read it as poetry. Um, and so... You know, it's just, it's a wonderful turning point. Who knows, you know, it, it really just kind of grabs you in into the hope that, that is there. But it's hope in a biblical sense, which is sure and certain. It's not hope in a, um, the way we talk about it as a wish. Yeah. Um, I think that becomes clearer as you as you read Joel, and it certainly becomes even clearer as you read the rest of the Bible. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in, in that regard. Uh, in terms of the place of fasting or other things, yeah, it's it's fascinating, isn't it? And I I really, you know, so verse 12, part of the invitation, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. They are expressions of contrition, of genuine contrition. Mm. And and I, sometimes I do wonder, you know, I think it's right not to, um, as, as it goes on and says, God wants, you know, like rend your heart, not your garments. He's not looking for the external things. Yep. And and we can be really big on those things, but yeah. But I also think it's worth asking the question: What does contrition look like mm. for us? Yeah. Um, you know, they are outward expressions of a heart that wants to return to God, and and they were, you know, weeping and mourning. I think is we we all know what that means fasting less so yeah uh, because we because we don't do it but i i i i love where these questions coming from sam and just you know wonder if we should express more mm. both individual and corporate mourning i'm not sure what that looks like maybe you have some ideas but but i love what these questions driving at yeah it's it's tricky isn't it um yeah, I think we've lost something in our modern culture about corporate versions of of these things. Like you look at previous, even the way the churches would express themselves with their bodies, you know, kneeling and uh, bowing heads and, and all sorts of things like that in, in sort of older versions of, of liturgies. Um, the church has sort of lost that. The best we get to is sort of stand and sit. Um, yeah, but I think there's... Um, there's something there, um, and, and yet it, 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 there's this constant wrestle between sort of uh, demanding an external expression of it, um, and yet I think perhaps we've gone a little bit too far the other way, which is uh, we're all individualistic, and I'll just express my um, my own emotions however I feel like it. The problem is I think we probably just don't express emotions of grief and lament full stop. We just don't do that. Yeah. Um, and yet it's fascinating when you think about our society my my mind goes back to the martin place siege yeah and and i mean we all were struck with the outpouring of grief yeah um and and the physical symbol of that were the flowers in martin place yeah that that's a very com- i mean that's similar down the road from your place raj there's a scene of an accident a couple of years ago uh where a family of children were were, were yep killed in a tragic accident and again that's that's the expression isn't it laying of flowers and of, of a memorial um perhaps that's something culturally that we do um yeah, yeah. well I, I think what you and i are both saying is we in our society you know we, we see expressions of that in different ways yeah um and it just is interesting to ponder what is 
what shape does that take um, in the Christian life and in church life? Yeah, yeah. And and maybe that's just something. I like the way you put it. Maybe the swing's gone too far the other way. Yeah, it's worth us just thinking about what it should look like. Yeah. Okay. Um, one more, just as we wrap up here. Um, the question here is just, are there any links to Revelation here in, uh, in, in Joel chapter 2? Um, there's some imagery, particularly someone's texted in about the, the blowing of trumpets. Any significance going on there? Um, yeah, so look, I, I think trumpets, uh, it's a great example of images that are picked up um, and used in the Bible. So, the, you know, having people blow trumpets as as a sign of, you know, celebration, introduction, something significant's about to happen, it, it really is quite a powerful image and has been at several points in the Bible. And and so I, I don't want to read too much um, into the particulars of what is then happening in Revelation and equating that to what's happening in Joel. Mm-hmm. Um, but... The image of trumpets just in grabbing our attention in that kind of way, I think, is quite appropriately striking. Yeah. So, so something significant's happening in Joel, and it is. It's talking about the day of the Lord. Yeah. And something significant, likewise, in Revelation, which yeah. is is propelling us forward to when that day finally comes. Yeah. So trumpets are just a, a means of kind of announcing, da 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 da, big news is coming. It's that kind of idea. Yeah, you do that quite well, Sam. We yeah. should get you introducing church or something. Like sure, that. yeah. Look, um, look. If we if we could have church, I will blow a trumpet. You know, um, I'm down for that. Just having church would, would be great. So, yeah. Excellent. Good, mate. That's it for today. Thank you for all your work. Uh, we're into Joel chapter two from verse eighteen this coming Sunday. So have a read. Uh, James Chen is preaching, but we've already said everything. So no, no. Um, tune in and. Uh, <laughs> And and uh, yeah, James is, is doing going to do a great job. I, I trust uh, with, with the back half of chapter two. And uh, yeah, loving this series, mate. So thanks for all your work amongst us. Thanks, Sam. And uh, praying for everyone in lockdown on COVID and all of that kind of you know, it's, it's challenging times for me. Indeed, four more weeks. Here we come. Thanks, Raj. Thanks, Sam. Bye bye.